If you have a Bible, please flip with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we'll read the uh, first story in Mark 5, making a little bit of progress through Mark, headed towards the middle of the book, continuing on in our series, Invasion of the Lamb. I am not going to a job interview afterwards. Gotten asked that. You just gotta switch it up every now and then, okay? I've been dressing down for the last few weeks, so I figured I'd put on a tie. Um, I teach at a school, and they used to require us to wear a tie on every Thursday. And then this year they got rid of that rule, and so I realized I had not worn a tie all year. Uh, so I got my YouTube out and learned how to tie a tie again, and uh, got it on successfully this morning. Um, our text this morning is one of the more interesting ones in the Gospels. Uh, it's by far the longest exorcism that you'll find in the Gospels. It's recorded in Mark. It's also recorded in Matthew and Luke. All the Gospel authors found this story very significant uh, and, and very much indicative of who Jesus was and what he's come to do. Uh, it's the most graphic story of an exorcism that we have in all the Gospels. So usually exorcism stories are fairly short. Uh, we've read early in Mark the one where Jesus is in the uh, synagogue with the Jewish leaders. and He cast out the unclean spirit. It's usually a sentence or two. The unclean spirit is cast out. Uh, and then we move on. Here, though, we get a uh, kind of elaborate story about the demon-possessed man and about the exorcism that occurs. Uh, and so we'll read it together and uh, walk through it. I think there's lots of truth for us to learn here. Mark 5, chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 20. Jesus heals a man with a demon. Then they came to the other side of the sea. You remember, this is right after he calms the storm. <laughs> To the country of the Gerasenes. This is a Gentile land on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Then when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Mark's way of saying demon. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. That any more is significant. At some point, it seems, he was able to be bound, but not anymore. For he had often uh, been bound with shackles and chains, but he broke the wrenched chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, or I swear to you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. Massive pig suicide going on right here. A whole lot of unnecessary bacon being destroyed. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. Um, you'll notice after demon-possessed, there might be a footnote in your Bible. Um, the real word here used in Greek is just demonized. And if you read literature about spiritual warfare, you'll find out there's this big debate about whether we should even call it demon possession versus demonization. Um, and what it is, it's not a difference of quality, it's a difference of quantity. A demon-possessed person is someone who's like fully controlled by demons, 
Where, and, and that's not possible for Christians full of the spirit. Demonization, though, is just simply when a demon is kind of aggravating you or is tempting you or is luring yourself. Uh, it seems like that is something that is possible to Christians from the rest of the scriptures. Um, so he's demon-possessed, the one who had the legion, and he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed or demonized man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Now, as we read this story, there's a, a whole lot of questions that we have, okay? It's an unusual exorcist story. Um, there's a sense of authenticity to the story um, in the sense that in all of the ancient literature that we have, there are no other exorcism stories where demons end up in another animal, get sent out of a human being and go into pigs. Um, so it seems highly unlikely that Mark would make this story up. Uh, this is an unusual story, and in fact so interesting both to us and to others that it's in all three of the synoptic gospels in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. Now, I recently had my students write an essay on a story in the gospels. So they got to pick a story in the gospels and write a creative essay from the point of view of someone in the story who's not Jesus or one of the disciples. By far and away the most popular story picked was this one. Um, there's something interesting about this story, right? There's something that draws us into it. Uh, and so um, my students came up with all these creative backstories for how this man ended up in the tombs and how he had gotten uh, demon-possessed. We don't really know his backstory, right? We, we do know, though, um, that he's living in the tombs right now. Everything about his situation screams out unclean. So he's in a Gentile territory. Uh, and this is further proved by the fact that there are pigs around, uh, by the fact that the demons themselves call Jesus um, the son of the Most High God, which is a, a Greek way of referring to the Jews' God. Um, so the demon himself seems to maybe be a little bit Greek, a little bit Gentile. Um, there are pigs. He's living among the tombs, so he's unclean in that sense. Those very off-limits for Jewish people. He has, an, of course, an unclean spirit inside of him, which is very off-limits, makes you unclean, according to the Jews. Everything in the story seems unclean, um, yet Jesus goes there and encounters this man. You remember, again, this is coming right off the heels of Jesus calming the storm. Uh, and so this has been a very eventful night for the disciples, right? They're in the storm. They think they're about to die. Jesus calms the storm. They perhaps are still wet, uh, from the storm, they're getting off the boat, they're wanting just a little, maybe, peace and quiet. Uh, and as soon as they step off of the boat, all of a sudden, this man with superhuman strength, who's naked and bleeding, starts running towards them. And I'm sure they're all getting behind Jesus at this point. They're going, you go first, you go take care of this. Um, the, Jesus has a conversation with the demon. You'll notice the demon does, in a sense, a reverse exorcism. Uh, so there are lots of unique things about the way Jesus exercised demons in the Gospels. In that, the average exorcist in the first century would have lots of magical incantations or spells, ritual formulas that they would use to cast out demons. Um, and you would often call on the authority of a power higher than yourself to cast out a demon. Jesus, though, just does it on his own authority. Uh, it's usually a very simple command, get out of the man. Jesus chokes the demons out. He, he grabs them and gets rid of them. 
Jesus himself seems to be the authority um, that is able to command the demons to do certain things. The demon here, though, actually swears by God to try to get Jesus not to torment him, right? So this is an unusual switching of the tables where the demon himself now is trying to appeal to a higher authority to be able to limit what Jesus will do. They asked to go into the pigs. We don't know why they asked to go into the pigs. Uh, Interestingly enough, Jesus lets them. Again, we don't know why Jesus lets them. Um, Perhaps their plan was to go into the pigs and then die. Maybe in the demon world, I'm not familiar with all the ins and outs. If you're in an animal and the animal dies, you're like popped loose back into the spiritual world, right? You can go do more things. Or perhaps this was a surprise to them. Jesus sent them into the pigs. They didn't know that they were about to go drown in the sea, um, but Jesus did, and they commit this kind of mass suicide. Um, This man is healed. The townspeople are frightened out of their minds, um, probably because in the Greek pagan world, um, usually people with this kind of power were considered sorcerers. And they were the kind of people you didn't want to mess with. Uh, and so even though he had healed this man, which is a good thing, um, they were still kind of scared of the power that he exerted over them. Also, the number of pigs here, 2,000 pigs, is a large sum of wealth. Um, this is probably the livelihood of a lot of people in the town. And so Jesus is probably not popular um, for having all these pigs killed as a result of his actions. Uh, and so they are afraid. They're terrified out of his mind. One commentator I read this week said, there's some truth here to being afraid. Um, if you're not at least a little afraid of Jesus, perhaps you truly haven't understood him. Um, Jesus has this way of messing up our scripts. We have scripts for our life, right? We have plans that we want to get accomplished, things we want to do in our lives. And Jesus has this way of kind of taking us down other paths that perhaps we wouldn't have chosen. Um, and so maybe to perceive Jesus rightly is to have a, a at least small amount of fear about what might come about when you follow Christ. The townspeople are afraid. Now, on another interesting thing about this passage, the demon-possessed man wants to stay with Jesus, wants to follow him. Normally, when somebody wants to stay who's been healed and they want to follow Christ, Jesus will ask them some questions, uh, try to explain to them the cost of what it will be like to follow him, but then he'll accept them into the group and they'll travel along with Jesus. Here, though, Jesus does not permit the man to come with him. Again, we don't know why. Perhaps it was because Jesus was going back to the Jewish lands where he spent most of his ministry, and a Gentile man would not have much credibility with his witness. He'd be considered unclean. Um, Jesus also here tells the man to go and tell everybody about what's happened. This is also very unusual in the book of Mark. We've talked about the messianic secret before, where Jesus heals somebody or casts out a demon and then commands the person to don't tell anybody about it. Here, though, he does the opposite. The one glaring exception in the gospel of Mark. He heals him and says, go and tell everyone about him. And this man becomes the first apostle to the Gentiles. He's the first one to go and preach the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done to a Gentile people in a Gentile land. Paul considered himself the first apostle to the Gentiles. Perhaps he was not familiar with this story. This unnamed demon-possessed man is the first one to go through Gentile land uh, and to talk about the good news of Jesus. Now, you have this demoniac man, and you, you have a lot of description about him, and he is portrayed as this very kind of pathetic figure. Um, one of the saddest persons you probably meet in the gospel accounts. 
Um, I want, though, to, to look at ways that perhaps we might be able to relate to the demoniac man. He is obviously an extreme case of someone possessed by evil outside of himself that has driven him into isolation and self-destructive behaviors. But I wonder, even if in our context, um, without perhaps demon possession, we find ourselves sometimes driven to isolation, to living outside the tombs, among the tombs. If we find ourselves falling into patterns of self-destructive behavior, or if we find ourselves overwhelmed with the sense that maybe something beyond us has this sort of control over us. Um, as any story with a demon possession, um, we've got to talk about demons. Uh, it has become more and more common for Christians to now not believe in demons. As the scientific revolution has come about, as we've explained a lot of things that the scriptures um, seem to call demon possession or demonization. Um, I would like to suggest to you this morning, though, that demons are a real thing. Um, that it's not irrational to believe in demons, especially if you believe in God. Uh, if you believe that there is a spiritual being named God who exists, it is not that irrational to believe that there are other spiritual beings in the world. And this does seem to be the worldview, the cosmology, the study of the, the nature of our universe presented in the scriptures. The scriptures would say we live in a world populated by spiritual beings, some good and some bad. Um, there are different ranks. The scriptures, even if you pay close attention, even in the Gospels, will differentiate between mental illness and demon possession. In Matthew 4, we're told Jesus is healing all the people that are coming to him. And it says he healed those who were sick. He healed those who were demon-possessed. He healed the lunatics, which is the first century word for insane. Uh, and he healed the paralytics. Um, so even in the Gospels, there's a separation. They weren't as primitive as we thought, right? They could tell the difference between someone who is just mentally ill versus someone who was demon-possessed. Uh, you've got, if, if, you, if you would want to not believe that demons exist, you've got to almost take away most of the gospel material in the four gospels. Um, Jesus is, almost above all else, an exorcist. Uh, and he comes to fight the realm of Satan and to, to fight the <laughs> demons that have been working on Satan's behalf. Uh, if you were to wash out those stories or reinterpret demons uh, or evil spirits as just metaphorically ways of speaking about evil, um, you kind of have to get rid of half of the four Gospels that we have. You kind of have to get rid of the story where Jesus comes and he's casting out these demons. Now, um, again, to go back to this point between demon possession and demonization, um, I think that um, it's, it's careful to delineate between the two. So demon possession would seem to be a case where an individual is controlled by a demon, under the complete ownership of a demon. Um, scripturally speaking, this does not seem something possible for Christians. Um, but scripturally speaking, it does seem possible for Christians to be afflicted by demons, to be demonized. Again, it's not a, a difference of quality, it's a difference of quantity, how much a demon has influence over your life. So there are multiple scriptural references that say certain patterns of behavior in our lives open ourselves up to the influence of the demonic to forces beyond ourselves. In, in one scenario, in one uh, epistle written, we're told that pride 
Uh, being prideful opens ourselves up. It gives a, a foothold to the enemy to influence us. When we walk in patterns of pride, um, the evil around us grabs onto that and tries to spur it on and tries to develop it and grow it and plan that, uh, that fire. Um, we're also told in the scriptures that bitterness is one of these attitudes as well, um, that, that the enemy comes and uses to uh, enforce um, kind of work against God's purposes in our lives. I don't have much experience with demons, very little experience. Uh, I have done a lot of research on them. I went through a phase in my Christian life where I um, thought demons were this kind of metaphorical way of speaking about evil, and it was just this primitive first century belief that you and I as enlightened people can get beyond. Um, as I've studied history and, and even studied science, though, I've come back to the belief um, that the scriptures are, are very clear that they think these exist. And, and you and I, instead of imposing our own worldview on the scriptures, are usually called to submit to the worldview of the scriptures. Um, so scientists have actually, we, we have very little scientific data on demon possession, um, but we have tons of empirical evidence, uh, and, I mean published in scientific literature. Um, there are stories after stories in the last 150, 200 years of anthropologists or sociologists who go to like a third world country to study their culture and come away from that experience convinced that there are things that go bump in the night. Um, again, in peer-reviewed scientific literature, um, secular people who have no faith, uh, who have no explanation for why things flew across the room, and why bodies distorted in the way they distorted, and why people with little strength were able to exhort supernatural strength. That's one of the most common descriptions of someone who is possessed or demonized to a great level. Um, there seems to be this... Uh, overwhelming empirical evidence that there are forces beyond us, even forces that, that affect us at systematic levels. Uh, so I think evil forces, demonic, Satan, he, he works in the systems of our society. And often you'll find that a system that is very destructive and dehumanizing is more evil than the sum of its parts. Um, that it's actually composed of people who are, for the most part, decently okay people, uh, who have no overt desire to commit evil into the world, but have been sucked into the system um, that bringing them all together creates much more evil. A lot of theologians have studied the Nazi movement and have decided that there has to have been some sort of superhuman power to create the level of evil that came out of the Nazis. Um, that if you look at who is working for the Nazi regime, um, on paper, a majority Christian, um, whether they were Christian or not, is something that would be an interesting debate. Um, but decent people, right? I mean, these are not people who set out to commit the worst atrocity in the history of the world. Just like us. These are people who had good <laughs> intentions. These are people who had believed whatever propaganda had been put in front of them and were sucked into this system that took more than the sum of the parts and created this evil um, movement in our lives. My uh, closest encounter with what I, I had the language for is this demon or unclean spirit came at a camp. I was working at a camp for kids with special needs. And at this camp, there was a young boy, 13 or 14 years old, who had all kinds of different um, mental problems and, and psychic disorders. And there was one night 
in particular where he got again this kind of superhuman power we had five of us in the living room trying to hold him down he was i can't go into all the details it was a very graphic situation um but he was doing some very kind of nasty stuff we're trying to get him to stop we're trying to to slow down and at one point he grabbed my shirt and he had pulled me to right up next to him in the other hand, he was holding things that I did not want to be touched by. <laughs> and so I am slowly trying to like loosen his grip and going through all the scenarios where he reaches for me with the other hand and I can dodge, dodge or duck or get out of the way. Um, but I remember, and it was chilling at the moment, it was, it was haunting, looking into his eyes, making eye contact. I was right there nose to nose with him. And I had never seen such emptiness in a person's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their eyes and it wasn't always this was, it was not always how his eyes looked but in this moment where he seemed to be overcome um, and, and kind of acting out in a very unusual way uh, there seemed to be this, this emptiness like he was no longer present inside of his body uh, he was under the control of something else um, and, and in fact I couldn't sleep that night the, the just image of, of his eyes were kind of haunting hauntingly seared into into my mind. Um, I think, though, evil in our world, evil around us, evil that oppresses us, is a very complex matter as well. As Christians, sometimes we try to make things too simplistic. So we try to say um, everything bad that happens is a demon, right? Or when, when something bad is happening in someone's life, it's a demon. We, we run the risk, actually, of, like with mentally ill people, um, there's kind of a risk, I think, to calling all people with mental illness somehow affected by demons. Um, there's this kind of moral stigma that we can put on people. Evil is a very complex thing, just like our bodies are very, very complex. Um, it's very hard to pinpoint in our bodies sometimes why things are going wrong. Uh, it can take years and years and years, and sometimes solutions are never reached. If you add to that, that layer of factors some sort of spiritual influence, the situation only gets more complex. Uh, and there's, there's often no telling what exactly is the root cause of what is plaguing an individual. Um, there was a, a pastor who preached a couple hundred years ago who preached on four reasons for depression, uh, four reasons that people have depression. And he uh, listed them out. And he said the first reason is physical. Sometimes a person needs more rest or they need more exercise or there are chemicals going wrong in their brain. And so there's a, just a physical problem that needs to be dealt with. They said the second reason could be psychological. There could be um, some sort of thinking problem going on in their minds and their psyche. And in this case, they need talk therapy, right? They need to work out whatever issues have gone on. The third reason, we would probably combine the first two, the psychological and the physical, now as we more understand the brain is actually a part of our body, right, with chemicals and, and neurons that influence how we think and how we, how we act. Um, the third reason he delineated was a moral reason for depression. Um, so perhaps someone is full of shame or guilt over something they've done, perhaps rightly. Uh, and in this case, the person needs forgiveness and needs reconciliation and needs confession. And then again, the fourth one, he said, was... Perhaps there's some sort of spiritual influence to the depression. But now, very interestingly, even 200 years ago, the, the man pointed out as he was preaching that in most cases, at least one or more of these things are interlocking in depression. Um, there's, there's probably a, a, a layered effect of cause for something going wrong in someone's life. The best advice I ever heard about dealing with spiritual warfare 
is actually this. It's to shoot in all directions. Um, so if someone is trapped by these self-destructive behaviors, or if someone is trapped in depression or anxiety, um, if someone is trapped in um, this kind of evil, seemingly possessed uh, state of mind, state of being, um, you should shoot in all directions. You don't know whether it's a medical reason or if it's a spiritual reason. And there's no reason not to go full force at the medical causes and full force at the spiritual causes. Um, there is somehow it's come about in the Christian culture this kind of stigma to taking medicine, particularly for like mental illnesses. I think that is in a word ridiculous, right? I think if you have things in your brain, chemicals that are off balance, you should take medicine for that. This is God's gift to us through science and through technology. It's not a weakness. Um, I think at the same time, though, you should probably pray. And you should probably ask the Lord if there's anything in the spiritual realm as a Christian, we are free and we have the power of the cross and resurrection behind us. If there's anything in the spiritual world behind this or aggravating this, um, we, we take command over it in Christ's name and we cast it out. Um, I think often, if I were to guess, a lot of the ways you and I are influenced by perhaps the evil spirits or the demonic in the world are ways where they come and they aggravate things that are already there in our lives. Um, whether things that are mentally there in our lives or physical problems that we have in our lives. I can give you an example from my own life. And so I told you this before. I'm diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Uh, in high school, I was diagnosed with panic disorder, um, a major depressive disorder. Uh, I've also got generalized anxiety disorder. I've got a smidge of social anxiety disorder. And, and looking back as a kid, I can see this going all the way back. Right? I'm just kind of an anxious person. My mind, compared to a typical person, if I were to have a conversation with them, seems to just worry much more and be much more anxious. And again, in high school, it got to the point where I would black out out of anxiety. My body would be so full of fear and panic. Um, and so I take medicine for that because I think there's a, a medical cause for that. I've gone through behavior therapy. I've talked out all my problems and talked through scenarios like that, and that helped a little bit, but I found that it was medicine that got my brain kind of up to the normal person's, typical person's brain. Um, my psychiatrist says that's a clear sign. There's a chemical imbalance in your mind. Um, your chemicals just aren't being produced and managed the same way a typical persons are. Um, and so I shoot on the medical side. But I can tell you, I do believe there have been times when the enemy has aggravated that problem that's already there and tried to use it against me. Right, And so um, I'll be very anxious more than usual about a speaking gig that I have coming up or about a conversation that I'm going to need to be involved in. And I can tell you that there are people and have been people in my life who believe much more strongly in spiritual warfare than I've ever been involved in who have prayed over this for me. And I said, whatever evil spirits perhaps are aggravating or bringing up this anxiety, we cast them out in the name of Jesus. We, we ask for healing. We ask for you to get rid of them. And I can say there have been moments where after that prayer, the anxiety is gone. And I think the aggravation in that moment was not a mental thing, was not a physical thing in my mind. Um, perhaps it was uh, the enemy trying to use something that I already had against me to, to work against the kingdom purposes. You've got this demoniac man who I think we can actually relate to much more than it appears on the surface. We often uh, are led into isolation from others through various activities, through various secrets, through various things going on in our life. We're often led to 
uh, hurt ourselves. Um, by the way, this cutting yourself with stones is not an ancient thing only. I mean, this is something that is still very much an epidemic, especially among young, young people and young women. Um, and then to broaden that to all kinds of self-destructive behaviors, um, to look at our society and look at maybe systematic evils that we have, um, human trafficking problem, um, global violence and, and genocide. Um, it seems like there's still plenty of evil around us in our world. Now, it's interesting in the story. The story here in Mark 5, 1 to 20 is also full of symbolism. So the demon's name is Legion. And he starts speaking in the plural. It seems like there are more than one demon in this man. Again, he seems to be an extreme case. Um, Legion, though, is also the Roman word for a military unit. An, an average military unit of four to 6,000 military soldiers. Uh, legions would set themselves up in cities that the Romans occupied in order to ensure peace, ensure taxation, and make sure there wasn't a rebellion, if there was one, to be able to put it down. Remember, at this time, almost every Jew thought that the biggest problem in the world was the Romans. They were uh, this big, bad empire. They were the monster that had come out of the sea that God needed to defeat. They expected their Messiah to come and to kick some Roman tail. Um, even non-Jews, actually, who were not originally Roman, often saw Rome as uh, this big, bad problem that needs to be dealt with. Um, it's very likely, even in this region, uh, that these Gentiles are still very um, disappointed uh, and and kind of enraged with the Roman rule and the Roman taxes and the Roman brutality over them. If a legion was marching towards your village, you would probably run away from your village. It was probably not good news uh, for them to show up. And so there's a lot of symbolism here in the demon's name being legion. Um, there's actually a lot of also military language throughout this um, in words like charged, um, the, the pigs charged, the, the, um, he commanded. There's lots of specialized military terms that appear in the Greek throughout this passage. What's interesting, though, is for all of these people, they thought the solution was for someone to come in and, and physically kill the Romans. Jesus, though, consistently throughout his ministry says that this is a mistake. Through, through his nonviolent teachings, through saying we should love our enemies... Jesus seems to, to, to diagnose the problem much deeper than the Roman Empire. And he seems to consider Rome a puppet for the real problem, which are these powers of evil. Satan himself, the demons, um, the powers of sin and death. They're currently using Rome uh, to accomplish their purposes, but the real enemy that needs to be defeated are these powers. Satan, evil, sin, and death, which is what Jesus does on the cross. When Jesus goes into this Gentile area, he does not kill the man possessed by legions. He instead heals him and defeats the legion, but not the physical Roman soldiers, the unclean spirits that was acting on behalf of the Roman um, empire of, of fear uh, and, and oppression. Um, there's this danger both for the Jews in the first century and for us continuing on in the global world we live in, to equate other people with evil themselves. Um, and to, to label and divide the world between good people and evil people, um, as the Jews did between themselves and the Romans. Um, Jesus, again, thinks the Romans are people who need to be healed, need to be forgiven of this deeper power that's controlling them. There's always this danger in creating this us-versus-them mentality. As one author put it, the line between good and evil doesn't run down between me and them. It runs down the heart of all of us. 
Instead of slaughtering our enemies, perhaps we need to pray for their freedom and for their transformation and work for their freedom and healing and transformation. We look at Jesus in the story. Again, Mark is highlighting the, the power of Jesus. He's the one who heals. He's the one who has come to heal. Uh, he, again, very easily cast out this demon. Uh, he does not slaughter this man. He restores his dignity. Um, again, he commissions the man to go and witness on his behalf. Um, this is Mark's gospel. Every story in Mark's gospel keeps coming back to this, um, that Jesus has come to bring God's kingdom. He's come to right the wrongs in the world, both individually and on a much larger cosmic scale. And then you and I, those who have been healed, those who know Jesus, are called to go and witness, are called to go out and spread the good news of what Jesus is and who he is and what he has accomplished in our lives and what he is going to eventually accomplish in the world. There's also an interesting interplay between the story in Mark 5 and the end of Mark's gospel, which I think illustrates ultimately how Jesus defeats the powers of evil. Um, These are kind of early battles of victory leading up to the ultimate battle where Jesus fully and finally defeats the powers of evil. So this demoniac man is naked and he is bleeding from cutting himself and he's living among the tombs. And what you'll see by the end of Mark's gospel is that Jesus is actually going to have reverse places with this man. This man, now fully clothed and healed and preaching the good news, um, will be fully healed and transformed while Jesus will be naked. He'll be stripped of his clothes. And he'll be flogged and beaten. And he'll be bleeding. And Jesus will not only be sent out to live among the tombs, he'll be sent into the tombs. Jesus reverses places with this man, reverses places with us. This is his act of atonement, his act of victory. He absorbs all the evil that there is in the world onto himself. And in so doing, he saves us. He steps in front of us. He takes on the weight of our sin, the wrath of God, and the natural consequences of our failures and of our fallen world so that we might live. As we come to the table this morning, uh, I pray that, that we would keep on the forefront of our minds this work of Christ taking our place like he took the place of the demoniac, uh, absorbing the wrath that was rightfully due to us, absorbing the evil in our world and letting it end and die in himself as he resurrects and offers us new life. I pray that we would also remember our calling to go out into the world like the demoniac uh, and, and be apostles, be witnesses, to go out and share the good news of Jesus' transformation in our lives and the transformation that he offers to others. Our world is full of, our community is full of people trapped in isolation and in self-destructive habits. Uh, Some, indeed, who feel overwhelmed by their situations, who feel like there's a force much larger than themselves keeping them trapped and keeping them stuck. Uh, It's in this world that we're called to offer healing and offer freedom in the name of Jesus. And as we come to the table, I invite you to, to worship with these thoughts in your minds. Will you pray with us? Thank you.